Chapter Three, Part One of *The Sorceress of the Strand* by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. *The Face of the Abbot*, Part One. If Madame Sarah had one prerogative more than another, it was that of taking people unawares. When least expected, she would spring a mine at your feet, engulf you in a most horrible danger, stab you in the dark, or injure you through your best friend. In short this dangerous woman was likely to become the terror of london if steps were not soon taken to place her in such confinement that her genius could no longer assert itself months went by after my last adventure once again my fears slumbered madame sarah's was not the first name that i thought of when i awoke in the morning nor the last to visit my dreams at night absorbed in my profession i had little time to waste upon her after all i made up my mind she might have left london she might have carried her machinations, her cruelties, her genius elsewhere. That such was not the case, this story quickly shows. The matter which brought Madame Sarah once again to the fore began in the following way. On the 17th of July, 1900, I received a letter. It ran as follows. 23 West Terrace, Charlton Road, Putney. My dear Mr. Druce, I am in considerable difficulty and am writing to beg for your advice. My father died a fortnight ago at his castle in Portugal leaving me his heiress. His brother-in-law, who lived there with him, arrived in London yesterday and came to see me, bringing me full details of my father's death. These are, in the last degree, mysterious and terrifying. There are also a lot of business affairs to arrange. I know little about business, and should greatly value your advice on the whole situation. Can you come here and see me to-morrow at three o'clock? Señor de Castro, my uncle, my mother's brother, will be here, and I should like you to meet him." If you can come, I shall be very grateful. Yours sincerely, Helen Sherwood. I replied to this letter by telegram. We'll be with you at three tomorrow. Helen Sherwood was an old friend of mine. That is, I had known her since she was a child. She was now about twenty-three years of age, and was engaged to a certain Godfrey Despard, one of the best fellows I ever met. Despard was employed in a merchant's office in Shanghai, and the chance of immediate marriage was small. Nevertheless, the young people were determined to be true to each other, and to wait that turn in the tide which comes to most people who watch for it. Helen's life had been a sad one. Her mother, a Portuguese lady of good family, had died at her birth. Her father, Henry Sherwood, had gone to Lisbon in 1860 as one of the under-secretaries to the embassy, and never cared to return to England. After the death of his wife, he had lived as an eccentric recluse. When Helen was three years old, he had sent her home, and she had been brought up by a maiden aunt of her father's, who had never understood the impulsive eager girl, and had treated her with a rare want of sympathy. This woman had died when her young charge was sixteen years of age. She had left no money behind her, and as her father declined to devote one penny to his daughter's maintenance, Helen had to face the world before her education was finished. But her character was full of spirit and determination. She stayed on at school as pupil-teacher, and afterward supported herself by her attainments. She was a good linguist, a clever musician, and had one of the most charming voices I ever heard in an amateur. When this story opens, she was earning a comfortable independence, and was even saving a little money for that distant date when she would marry the man she loved. Meanwhile, Sherwood's career was an extraordinary one. He had an extreme stroke of fortune in drawing the first prize of the Grand Christmas State Lottery in Lisbon, amounting to one hundred and fifty million reis representing in English money thirty thousand pounds. With this sum he bought an old castle in the Estrella Mountains. 
and accompanied by his wife's brother, a certain Petro de Castro, went there to live. He was hated by his fellow men, and with the exception of de Castro he had no friends. The old castle was said to be of extraordinary beauty, and was known as Castello Mondego. It was situated some twenty miles beyond the old Portuguese town of Coimbra. The historical accounts of the place were full of interest, and its situation was marvelously romantic, being built on the heights above the Mondego River. The castle dated from the twelfth century, and had seen brave and violent deeds. It was supposed to be haunted by an old monk, who was said to have been murdered there, but within living memory no one had seen him. At least, so Helen had informed me. Punctually at three o'clock on the following day, I found myself at West Terrace, and was shown into my young friend's pretty little sitting-room. "'How kind of you to come, Mr. Druce,' she said. "'May I introduce you to my uncle, Senor de Castro?' The Senor, a fine-looking man, who spoke English remarkably well, bowed, gave a gracious smile, and immediately entered into conversation. His face had strong features, his beard was iron-gray, and so also were his hair and moustache. He was slightly bald about the temples. I imagined him to be a man about forty-five years of age. "'Now,' said Helen, after we had talked to each other for a few minutes, "'perhaps, Uncle Petro, you will explain to Mr. Druce what has happened.' As she spoke, I noticed that her face was very pale, and that her lips slightly trembled. "'It is a painful story,' said the Portuguese. "'Most horrible and inexplicable.' I prepared myself to listen, and he continued. "'For the last few months my dear friend had been troubled in his mind. The reason appeared to me extraordinary. I knew that Sherwood was eccentric, but he was also matter-of-fact, and I should have thought him the last man who would be likely to be a prey to nervous terrors. Nevertheless, such was the case. The old castle has the reputation of being haunted, and the apparition that is supposed to trouble Mondego is that of a ghastly white face that is now and then seen at night, peering out through some of the windows, or one of the embrasures of the battlements surrounding the courtyard. It is said to be the shade of an abbot who was foully murdered there by a Castilian nobleman who owned the castle a hundred years ago. It was late in April of this year when my brother-in-law first declared that he saw the apparition. I shall never forget his terror. He came to me in my room, woke me, and pointed out the embrasure where he had seen it. He described it as a black figure, leaning out of a window, with an appalling, horrible white face, with wide open eyes apparently staring at nothing. I argued with him, and tried to appeal to his common sense, and did everything in my power to bring him to reason, but without avail. The terror grew worse and worse. He could think and talk of nothing else, and to make matters worse, he collected all the old literature he could find bearing on the legend. This he would read, and repeat the ghastly information to me at meal-times. I began to fear that his mind would become affected, and three weeks ago I persuaded him to come away with me, for a change, to Lisbon. He agreed, but the very night before we were to leave I was awakened in these small hours by hearing an awful cry, followed by another, and then the sound of my own name. I ran out into the courtyard and looked up at the battlements. There I saw, to my horror, my brother-in-law rushing along the edge, screaming as though in extreme terror, and evidently imagining that he was pursued by something. The next moment he dashed, headlong, down a hundred feet, onto the flagstones by my side, dying instantaneously. Now comes the most horrible part. As I glanced up, I saw, 
and I swear it with as much certainty as I am now speaking to you, a black figure leaning out over the battlement, exactly at the spot from which he had fallen. A figure with a ghastly white face, which stared straight down at me. The moon was full, and gave the face a clearness that was unmistakable. It was large, round, and smooth, white with a whiteness I had never seen on human face, with eyes widely open and a fixed stare. The face was rigid and tense, the mouth shut and drawn at the corners. Fleeting as the glance was, for it vanished almost the next moment, I shall never forget it. It is indelibly imprinted on my memory. He ceased speaking. From my long and constant contact with men and their affairs, I knew at once that what de Castro had just said instantly raised the whole matter out of the commonplace, true or untrue, real or false, serious issues were at stake. "'Who else was in the castle that night?' I asked. "'No one,' was his instant reply. "'Not even old Gonzales, our one-man servant. He had gone to visit his people in the mountains about ten miles off. We were absolutely alone.' "'You know Mr. Sherwood's affairs pretty well,' I went on. "'On the supposition of trickery, could there be any motive that you know of for anyone to play such a ghastly trick?' "'Absolutely none. You never saw the apparition before this occasion?' "'Never. And what were your next steps?' "'There was nothing to be done except to carry poor Sherwood indoors. He was buried on the following day. I made every effort to have a systematic inquiry set on foot, but the castle is in a remote spot.' and the authorities are slow to move. The Portuguese doctor gave his sanction to the burial after a formal inquiry. The deceased was testified as having committed suicide while temporarily insane, but to investigate the apparition they absolutely declined. And now, I said, will you tell me what you can with regard to the disposition of the property? The will is a very remarkable one, replied de Castro. Senor Sousa, my brother-in-law's lawyer, holds it. Sherrod died a much richer man than I had any idea of. This was owing to some very successful speculations. The real and personal estate amounts to seventy thousand pounds, but the terms of the will are eccentric. Henry Sherwood's passionate affection for the old castle was quite morbid, and the gist of the conditions of the will is this. Helen is to live on the property, and if she does, and as long as she does, she is to receive the full interest on forty thousand pounds, which is now invested in good English securities. Failing this condition, the property is to be sold, and the said forty thousand pounds is to go to a Portuguese charity in Lisbon. I have also a personal interest in the will. This I know from Sherwood himself. He told me that his firm intention was to retain the castle in the family for his daughter, and for her son if she married. He earnestly begged of me to promote his wishes in the event of his dying. I was not to leave a stone unturned to persuade Ellen to live at the castle, and in order to ensure my carrying out his wishes, he bequeathed to me the sum of ten thousand pounds, provided Ellen lives at Castello Mondego. If she does not do so, I lose the money. Hence my presence here, and my own personal anxiety to clear up the mystery of my friend's death, and to see my niece installed as owner of the most lovely and romantic property in the peninsula. It has, of course, been my duty to give a true account of the mystery surrounding my unhappy brother-in-law's death, and I sincerely trust that a solution to this terrible mystery will be found, and that Helen will enter into her beautiful possessions with all confidence. The terms of the will are truly eccentric, I said. Then, turning to Helen, I added, 
Surely you can have no fear in living at Castello Mondego when it would be the means of bringing about the desire of your heart. Does that mean you are engaged to be married, Helen? asked de Castro. It does, she replied. Then she turned to me. I am only human and a woman. I could not live at Castello Mondego with this mystery unexplained, but I am willing to take every step, yes, every step, to find out the truth. Let me think over the case, I said after a pause. Perhaps I may be able to devise some plan for clearing up this unaccountable matter. There is no man in the whole of London better fitted to grapple with the mystery than I, for it is, so to speak, my profession. You will please see in me your hearty collaborator, Mr. Druce, said Senor de Castro. When do you propose to return to Portugal? I asked. As soon as I possibly can. Where are you staying now? At the Cecil. He stood up as he spoke. I am sorry to have to run away, he said. I promised to meet a friend, a lady, in half an hour from now. She is a very busy woman, and I must not keep her waiting. His words were commonplace enough, but I noticed a queer change in his face. His eyes grew full of eagerness, and yet, was it possible, a curious fear seemed also to fill them. He shook hands with Helen, bowed to me, and hurriedly left the room. "'I wonder whom he is going to meet,' she said, glancing out of the window, and watching his figure as he walked down the street. He told me when he first came that he had an interview pending of a very important character. But there, I must not keep you, Mr. Druce. You are also a very busy man. Before you go, however, do tell me what you think of the whole thing. I certainly cannot live at the castle while that ghastly face is unexplained. But at the same time, I do not wish to give up the property. You shall live there. Enjoy the property and be happy, I answered. I will think everything over. I am certain we shall see a way out of the mystery. I wrung her hand and hurried away. During the remainder of the evening, this extraordinary case occupied my thoughts to the exclusion of almost everything else. I made up my mind to take it up, to set every inquiry on foot, and above all things, to ascertain if there was a physical reason for the apparition's appearance. In short, if Mr. Sherwood's awful death was for the benefit of any living person. But I must confess that, think as I would, I could not see the slightest daylight until I remembered the curious expression of de Castro's face when he spoke of his appointment with a lady. The man had undoubtedly his weak point. He had his own private personal fear. What was its nature? I made a note of the circumstance and determined to speak to Vandeleur about it when I had a chance. End of Part 1 of Chapter 3